Hello, and welcome to Critical Bounds Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Bjorden. Today, our guest is Eva Mabel Davis, who is an arts advocate and curator. She's a co-director at Transmitter, a collaborative curatorial initiative. She is currently the intake paralegal at Unlocal Inc., a nonprofit organization that provides direct immigration legal representation, legal consultations, and community education to New York City's undocumented immigrant communities. Davis was born in Mexico, raised in the United States, and studied art history at the University of Washington. She is a founding member of El Salon, a meetup for cultural producers. Her Mexica identity, immigrant, and working-class narrative informs her work in advocacy for equity and social justice through the arts. During our episode today, we talk about Eva's work with her project El Salon, bringing people back together after the pandemic, our mutual anxiety, watching people on screen touching each other without masks, the processes of arts institutions, and making policy and how culture informs our daily lives. Welcome, and I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate you taking time out. Nicole, thank you so much for the invitation and just kind of following along with your work and and wanting to to just see a little bit more of the connection. I was meaning to just kind of connect more with some West Coast folks. So this is really cool. Like I mentioned, I'm I'm a Husky. I graduated from the University of Washington, yeah. Seattle. So I'm I'm somewhat familiar. I mean, I think as a student, I didn't really. I, I was working a lot too, and I just didn't get a lay of a lot of the creative, cultural in Seattle. It's hard, you know, having lived here for you know the better part of twenty years. I don't have time. Like, I don't have time to do all of these things. I'm like, I'm usually working. I work like eight to six, Monday through Friday. And a lot of the events start like at six or like Mm -hmm. at five five even. And I'm like, but will I be awake? Who knows? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How present am I going to be for this particular thing? Exactly. Um, But I am excited like for hopefully a vaccine so that hopefully, you know, we can actually do like real art events again because that would be so nice to be able to have that choice yeah I mean I think that it it has also been a challenging place to be um but that allows for being creative and I think it's given us the permission to connect a lot more digitally definitely so this will also be an ongoing like aspect of how we connect it's opened up a lot of these uh, conversations yeah. around things like uh, disability and accessibility. Oh, um, yes, yeah. absolutely. I don't remember how we hooked up on Instagram, but somebody followed somebody and then, you know, there was like a mutual follow back. But you do a lot of really cool things. So as you mentioned, you are a Husky. You went to University of Washington for undergrad. So can you just talk a little bit about your journey? Like, where are you from and where have you been and where are you now? Uh, Absolutely. I'm really happy to be able to speak about my journey, especially around the arts culture and its access Uh, because for me it hasn't necessarily been linear and I want to really show that there is a lot of different ways to access arts and culture and a lot of the time because I studied it in school I studied art history 
it felt like I could only do one thing. Like I could only be an academic art historian. So I had to study and maybe I need to go get a master's or I have to have a PhD to uh, be able to curate a show. Yeah. There were a lot of these things that, that still feel linear. But as I've grown and been able to work in different areas and in different positions, I've realized that it's really about how we apply the knowledge that we gain by working with people, by having relationships within who and how we want to work. And all of that ultimately is super important with how we are able to manifest ideas and express ourselves and work in the creative field. Yeah. Uh, and it has also allowed a lot of space for me to amplify different narratives that I had not seen before. A lot of my background in school was art historical and it was primarily Eurocentric. If it was outside of a Eurocentric study, it was othering. So it was like a very specific class in Indigenous or African or Asian art. It wasn't something that was foundational. It was definitely not something that was relatable to any other field that I could take a class in. And it was often just a lot of the times I was just kind of frustrated with that. But and I was also frustrated by all the expectations of, okay, so this is what you study. So now you go work in a museum. And what I ended up doing was actually I was a volunteer from one day to the next. We didn't have an after school art program. (laughs) And I took it on. I had been doing and studying art education. And museum education, but I hadn't actually activated in any way. So I had the chance to do that with my own curriculum, doing my own. Instead of studying Picasso, we were looking at African math, period. That was just one of my first learning experiences that if I wasn't getting what I was supposed to be getting, I was just going to do whatever I wanted. So I don't know if that's a great philosophy, but it's definitely... I feel like it's the best way with things like art history. A lot of people think about, these days, think about art history as this thing that's always existed, but it came about in the 19th century as a way to like glorify Eurocentric art. And at the time, they had this really, like they basically just worshipped the ancient Greeks and Mm -hmm. Romans. And so... Anything else was just like not considered art. It was considered outside. And as you said, it's something other, not foundational, not important, and not worthy of being studied in depth. And I also feel like it's been a field that that it it actually has so much power and we're not accepting it. Yeah. I I remember watching uh, Mona Lisa smile, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And, And you have... You know, this all women's like ladies preparatory school learning art history, the classics. Why? Because it's part of their culture. It is reinforcing Eurocentric upper class culture. Right. And that is part of what you ultimately want your young women to represent for society make sure that their husbands are versed in it and then teach their children. Like you mentioned, like Picasso, 
whom I personally have huge issues with Picasso. And whenever anyone mentions him, I get really like, I don't even want to talk about yeah. it. <laughs> I, I want to fight about him. That'd like the nice. um, the, the stand-up comedian, Hannah, oh, what is her last name? I cannot think of it right now, but she did this great uh, stand-up routine about um, how horrible Picasso was and how, because she was an art historian too. And she was like, but you're not allowed to say it. Hannah Gadsby. Um, she's this Australian comedian. And she's like, but you're not allowed to say it. And she's like, why? Because then the whole thing would crumble. And, and she's like, can't hate Picasso, even though he was an asshole and his art wasn't really that great, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so I really identify with that personally. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, that, that was actually one of the main classes a lot of folks took in school. It was just an entire semester of one man, Picasso. Yeah. Mm. it's insane I feel like a lot of things so I feel like Picasso a lot of the sort of fascination and romanticism around him is like about his lifestyle and like how many women he surrounded himself with which is also really gross and like super like yeah just gross I think that a lot of like that same thing happens with people like Hemingway and and all of these other like, you know, the the white males who are like the classics and like whatever, whether it be art or literature or like what have you, that they like they just go where they want and take what they want. It's the super like colonizer point of view. Yeah. <laughs> are like, Oh, that's so great. And I'm like, is it though? It's really gross. Like if you break it down, that's like a really gross thing to be. If it was anybody else, it would actually be really looked down upon. Right. If it like wasn't if a it, white dude. It, yeah. If it wasn't a, a, a white male, then it would be, oh, this person can't do anything better for themselves. You know, this person is depraved. This person is, is not fit to be in society, et cetera, et cetera. If it was a woman, oh, God. Like, <laughs> like who is she? Demon. Completely demon. Burn her at the stake. That's right. And... There is so much in that that it is just meant to be binary. It is right and it is wrong. And it doesn't allow for creativity, actually, which leaves us with a art historical canon that is just white males. Yeah. Yep. And that is, you know, beyond a lot of the other social constructs that hasn't allowed uh, women or people of color to participate or be recognized in culture. Analyzing all of these things have been part of my journey. I've been in New York City for seven years. I think I'm coming up to eight. Um, I came out here to work in the adult education department under for a specific project and accessibility, actually, at the Guggenheim Museum. Um, at the time, they had a program that was really focused on creating verbal descriptions about paintings and works and anything in the museum, actually. The verbal description serving visitors with low visibility. And, and for me, it was, a, it was such a beautiful experience to realize that 
the writing and description about a work allowed me to see the work differently. Entering a painting through describing a color by scent and by feeling uh, the sun rays as lemon and zest and blues as cool like water, expanding really on my on my writing and vocabulary, and also on and in seeing a lot of these issues of access into the museums, uh, access into institutions, which I found really enriching, but also problematic. I myself as a worker, what was my role inside of the museum became very apparent very quickly. What uh, was that, did you feel? At the beginning, I felt like I very much had a voice to speak about my concerns for the museum, whether it was to continue to make sure the work was visible so that it kept being funded. But at the end, I also realized that there are so many other forces within a museum and large institutions about what they can and cannot fund and what the priorities are. Right. The priorities too and how they align or end up being completely hypocritical to their mission statement. Their mission statement that may say that they're serving a particular community, that they are part of enriching culture. What does culture mean in that sense? Um, If it just means the white supremacist culture that we live in, there's a problem there. If it says it's supporting the community it surrounds, well, we're employees of this community and we do not feel supported <laughs> at minimum wage. In New York? And that's uh, Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't work. That does not work at all. There's a lot of these intersections that I started to find uh, very problematic and also very much in line with my own politics. Uh, my own politics have always been very much open, left-leaning, liberal in a sense that I want to have patience for all of these different stories and how we intersect and live with each other. And I say this because I, I grew I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, my family came from Mexico and settled right around the Chicagoland area. Uh, interacted a lot in the Midwest with this nice culture yeah. and with a lot of racism. It, it comes to a point where you just live in it. You know, I can't even complain. <laughs> it, it's no good complaining. I just live in it. And, and I also, because I'm so immersed in it, I try to see where it's coming from. It comes out of ignorance. A lot of the times it's not willful ignorance. It's ignorance because of the lack of education system. It's ignorance because of the politics of this country. And it's just plain ignorance of knowledge and not ignorance of recognizing people as people. That is culture. That is why I've also decided to keep pursuing this as my career. There is no plan B here. It's just going to permeating to anything I decide to do from being in a museum, being in education, uh, to now, uh, being much more in a role of a curator, um, and an advocate. So whatever platform I have, I'd like to advocate for this awareness of culture being important in our education system in recognizing to build empathy as human beings and recognizing that we were part of it. You know, we're in a culture of 
cards, we have a Zoom culture, we have money-driven culture, and then we can also have a very kind and, and beautiful culture. I want to emphasize that more and more in my work, and I'm working on that now. And as a curator, I have founded a platform to tell stories and to be that bridge between the artist and its relevance to our society, our politics, our space. And that's that's kind of where, where I'm at, at at the moment. So can you talk a little bit more about your work as an arts advocate? Because I think some people might not know what that is. And I would love to hear more about that too. Sure. It can be very micro. And I've had the chance to take on the role at a very macro scale. So I'll give a couple of examples of both. Um, micro in a sense that when I sit on a panel where we review applications for a particular residency, for an exhibition, um, or for a grant or an award, um, I get a chance to sit on a panel and advocate for certain artists, not particular artists, but maybe artists that I see standing out. Artists where I recognize a particular uh, angle that is culturally driven, that has a conversation that may not be recognized, um, especially recognized by, a, by an all-white audience. If I see beautiful work and the title is in Spanish, the representation is particularly cultural to something that is Latin American or immigrant or that, that I personally recognize and that I value the work worthy of whatever the presentation is, I want to make sure I advocate for that and that it isn't just glossed over. Because a lot of the times that's what happens. If we don't, if you have a panel of five people that don't understand anything, why should they pay attention to it? No one's advocating for it. And that's why we need to think about diversity efforts as not just promotions or just filling in quotas, but rather as in that these are conversations that go all the way down to the root. Exactly all the way down to that root. And that's that's where I am, opening my big mouth these days. Um, <laughs> I'm just like, how about we do this or we do that or we think about this. Um, and so my advocacy at that level is really just saying, hey, can we do this? Can we do that? Uh, sometimes my advocacy is if I'm strategizing in a group, it's for can we have this accessible in this way? Or can we add this particular language to our website, to our announcement, to our programming? Because I really believe that it's planting seeds. You know, maybe nobody has ever asked this particular space to think about an accessibility statement, to think about providing uh, a different access mode, or thinking about reaching out to a particular community. You know, one of my favorite aha moments was when I asked an organization to send uh, internship applications to community colleges. We're so used to having our interns come out of university level programs. Like, no, 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 no. Like, reach out to community college. Like, what is wrong with that? Why do we have these elitist structures? They're, they're working against us. That's right. 
Um, so that was, you know, it's a lot of advocacy. It's really just speaking up. And sometimes that has been detrimental to my time with that particular space or place or person. And that's okay, because I really believe that it has also worked out for the better. And honestly, you probably would not want to continue a working relationship with an organization or institution or people who are not willing to hear hard truths about what is lacking and what they're currently doing, how it's serving a broader audience or community. Yeah. And I think especially when the mission or the core statement is we serve X community. I think people don't even like, and and not everyone across the board, but I often wonder like, A, who is writing these mission statements Uh for institutions? And B, like, what do they think it means to like, to, I mean, diversity, as we know, has become this like buzzword over the past four or five years that, you know, ultimately it, it doesn't mean anything except tokenization in a lot of places. And I mean, I just often wonder like, (laughs) they're like, okay, we need to like update our mission statements. So like, do they go (laughs) hire like a PR firm? Do they like go in house? Do they like have one of their interns write it? Like, I just, I always wonder like where these things come from because a lot of these mission statements, they sound so lofty and like, yeah, we just, we want to be there for everyone and we want to serve this community and we want to do good and, you know, use art for blah, blah, blah. And then like the reality of things coming out, it comes out that like none of that, none of that is actually happening. I love that there is somebody there interrogating that and really trying to push back on like, hey, let's let's actually look at what you're saying and then like put some action behind it. A lot of the important conversations that I very much think are part of this advocacy. To get to give another example, it was two years ago now, or like a year and a half ago. Uh, time doesn't exist, 2020. So <laughs> I don't remember. Early 2019, I was accepted into an advocacy cohort with NALAC, the National Association for Latinos in the Arts. We were um, a cohort from all over the country, uh, working in the arts, in administration, uh, and folks came in from music schools, from dance studios, from... Uh, working in cultural affairs, to myself, an independent worker, um, museums, artists, too. And we were really kind of schooled in how policy is, is set up throughout the country, public policy and how the arts must be advocated for or they slip through the cracks. Right. Our cohort was specifically schooled in how less than 3% of the National Endowment of the Arts goes into supporting uh, Latino institutions in the USA. Wow. But the fact is, is that we are the, quote, largest minority in the country. Right. 
So what does that say about the overall kind of culture that we're going to build? The active erasure of the cultural efforts that are, that are not at all supported. So we were tasked with, with learning about where we are in our city and our state. And we went to Washington, D.C. And we were there for the week of advocacy in the arts. We met with the National Endowment of the Arts. We met with the Hispanic Caucus. We were able to speak with our individual representatives about issues. Um, but primarily thinking about how it's not just about the arts, but how it is intersected with very real policy issues. Right. So in my case, coming out of Brooklyn, coming out of New York City, I was very much thinking about how uh, gentrification and housing rezoning is benefiting these larger corporations and putting working artists out of housing and out of workspace. Yep. Without an affordable studio, how do you expect to support artists in the city that is a massive cultural <laughs> institution within itself? Right. And is considered like basically the center of the arts in the United States. It's preposterous that if we can't have affordable housing for our actors, Broadway's not going to work out. It's that simple. I really went there with advocacy on housing, how it intersects with the arts. Another issue that was brought up was around finances and taxes. As an independent worker, taxes are all I think about. Even thinking about, so I'm I'm not on Facebook anymore, but I was on Facebook at the beginning of the pandemic. And even when, so when they were, uh, when people were first filing for unemployment and yeah. people were first waiting for their, you know, the only check that we ever got from the government during all this time, uh, there were people that were like, I've been turned down for unemployment because, you know, I don't, like, I don't have a steady income. I'm, I'm an artist and, uh-huh. you know, I do get paid occasionally, but it's not like, you know, <laughs> I... And I have paid taxes on it, but it's not the same as I would be making. I'm, I'm getting nothing from unemployment, basically. Yeah. Um, and it's just a really different way of working that I think a lot of people don't understand that's not necessarily the same as like an independent contractor for uh-huh. like a company. If you're like a computer engineer or something and you contract right. yourself out, it's not the same thing as like being a working artist or, or an independent curator or like somebody who works in the arts occasionally. Like it's a, right. it's very different. Yeah. Yeah, very, very different. Uh, I really, I feel like I'm working, you know, two months out of the year just to pay taxes. Yeah, which is yikes. Yep. Yikes. Especially uh, when you consider the, the <laughs> those corporations that are profiting from like mm-hmm. everything, basically. And they're not even paying taxes. They're not paying taxes. <laughs> I, just, I just read something that said that... Um, and, you know, of course, I'm going to go and, and research this to make sure it's true. But I do believe it, that the are the three wealthiest men in America, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk and Bill Gates, are not going to have any taxes to pay this for this year. 
cool. Which is just what I consider like how much I pay in taxes, which is a lot. And then how much, as you say, you work two months out of the year just to pay your taxes. Like that's ridiculous. It, it becomes very, you know, it becomes very real uh, yeah. when it's presented with policy and you see the numbers of how many people work, how much they contribute to the economy and what can be done to relieve that financial pressure and to actually push more into the economy, something gets through better to politicians. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there were you know, a, a lot of what I learned in, in, in that fellowship, how relevant it is with our lives. And it really clicked. We're like, of course, this makes sense. When uh, when I think about and work around storytelling around immigration issues, I do that because I know it is effective. I know that it is therapeutic. I know that it is a way to communicate when you come from dif- from a different language, from a different culture, from a different place. Art intersects with all of those things. Those are just a lot of hats. You do a lot. Like I was re- I was going over um, just like your bio and sort of the research that I, I've been doing about you. And you do so many things, which is not unusual in the art world as, as any of us who work in the art world know. We all wear a million hats because we have to. Um, it's a real gig economy in the U.S. right now. But you work at Unlocal, Unlocal Inc., um, yes. And can you talk a little bit about what that, what that organization does? Absolutely. So Unlocal Inc. is a community-centered immigration law firm. Uh, the work that is being run there varies and stretches from asylum cases, working with youth, as well as uh, specific work with the LGBTQI plus community all of which uh, are seeking support for their immigration cases. We also work with DACA recipients on the ground with different community organizations here in New York City. We are able to then keep a lot of the relationships and watch somebody grow from one immigration procedure to the next one to the next one, but then also provide as much support as possible. We're able to expand our services to beyond immigration and that if they need any other social service, uh, we're able to provide the referrals for all of that. My role in, it, in the organization is as an intake associate and cultural liaison. For my day-to-day, I answer the phone, speak to whoever is seeking our services. Um, And that initial phone call, uh, navigating that is about measuring the kind of information that I can get and that I can give so that I understand who to send the phone call to, if it's a lawyer, if it's going to be a consultation, if it's going to be for our education and outreach, if maybe it's a story that I immediately know that we can't do anything about. And so how to handle that. I really believe that my role is very similar to how I look at art and think about it. 
I was thinking about that. (laughs) It's so much about patience, deciphering, and then figuring out what that narrative, where that narrative fits, and and giving that person that space for expression. More often than not, it's the expression of a lot of feelings with a system that at least the last four years of rights, human rights, that has refused acknowledgement, that has refused the overall humanity. For me, it's really important to have as extended as a conversation as it needs to be and to be able to provide them with as much and as realistic information as possible. Within our office, we work as a collective. We work understanding the human capacity that we take on, understanding and being very open to whatever we need to help us uh, deal with the day-to-day. And also acknowledging that more than three-quarters of the staff has gone through some kind of immigration procedure. Which I think is is in itself a lot different than many of the organizations who are who are trying to advocate or like working with uh, immigration communities or immigrating communities. Yeah, there is you know there is something that that we're the one thing we're not questioning or when we do it's very uh, sensible. It's around this. A white savior complex. <laughs> right. Yeah. This, the, we were on the ground doing what we can. And everybody brings a different skill to the table. When I say that I'm a cultural liaison, that's not necessarily official. But for example, right before we had to close down museums in New York, I approached the Whitney Museum of American Art if they can have a tour. Uh, provided for community lawyers of their recent exhibition, Vida Americana, which is uh, the Mexican muralist's influence on a lot of the civil rights and union workers' uh, movements of the 20th century here in the United States. And of course, that narrative is not very far from what we have going on presently. The tour and being present inside of the galleries, looking at these massive, beautiful, also very raw paintings, gave us a place to just talk about very difficult issues, but also see the connection of the work that the law firm is doing to an ongoing struggle that is a continuum that is so much bigger than ourselves and also is ourselves. So that was a nice little office outing yeah. uh, slash crying fest. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm really excited uh, this year. We actually put an open call out because we want a mural of our own in the office to take a look at our values, our mission and to see how we can we can project that and what kind of imagery we want to represent us. So I'm very excited to be able to facilitate that. 
Have you found an artist yet or you're, you're sending out the call soon? Uh, we did. We found an artist. Oh. Uh, shout out to Angel. He's going to be meeting with a cohort of different community members. And he's already been meeting with staff to really hash out where we're coming from. Um, because like you said, the you know mission statements for a lot of organizations, where are they coming from? And what do they mean? And, and for us, we allow it to be very open. I feel like we, we revise and revisit our mission statement whenever we need to, whenever we feel like we need to. And that's a, that's a huge lesson for me as having worked in arts organizations and, and thinking about the, the work that an art organization wants to do. It's like we, we need to have this flexibility. We can't just live by the mandates of a board. Right. Otherwise, we're just part of an ongoing problem of institutions. Right. Very excited to be working with Angel Garcia to think about this. You do a ton of different things. And you also, do you host or did you found uh, El Salon? El Salon is an ongoing project that I host. Uh, it was actually co-founded with several people uh, that came and still come back. I really consider anybody who shows up part of the cohort. <laughs> uh, but now I host it about once a month. And it's also because it's not necessarily, uh, it's a project that's really under my own direction. So I host it when I can. I host it when it's possible. I invite two or three artists to present on their work uh, during an evening of El Salon. And so I budget to, be able to provide them with a, uh, an honorarium. So if I have it, I'm able to swing it. I host it. Of course, many, many artists have also volunteered and have also waived that fee. But essentially, it's an evening where two or three artists present. It brings together a lot of people to listen to the artists, be present. Uh, it's a potluck. Sometimes it's a potluck when they've been hosted digitally. Of course not. When they've been hosted inside spaces where they don't allow food, that's fine. We still host it. We don't have food. But the premise is really within what is a potluck. It's you come in and share whatever you can, whenever you have it. You can share food, share an idea, share a friend. And it's really also uh, a place where an artist can present on work that they're thinking about, work that's in progress. It doesn't have to be final. Um, I've had artists approach me about screening a film that they want some feedback on before they take it to another place or before they keep working on it. So it also has provided this, this kind of community that will be present and will be coming in from a lot of different, um, not just backgrounds, you know, from being writers or artists or curators or just supporters and art lovers but also from different walks of life. And I also try, one thing that's, that's very important for me is for it to be intergenerational, yes. bringing older artists with younger artists and to also not necessarily have a hierarchy, not necessarily, but just not have the hierarchy period around what is considered high or lowbrow art or any of that bullshit. Yeah, um, bullshit. <laughs> and, um, and so... It really has shaped out to be 
I, I don't like to use it as like a networking evening, but that's the easy way of explaining it. Like how how older salons happen too, and it, and they did yeah. call it networking because it wasn't like a capitalist mm. thing. It was just like people meeting people and then like yeah. making work together. And I mm-hmm. feel like that's how the art world works in its most pure form. And I don't mean the art world yeah. as in like Christie's or the auction houses or like the very fancy galleries in New York that are all about selling things. I mean like the art world, the artists, and the people. Yeah. Who- Absolutely. You know, I, I started the project because I hadn't really found a place like that. I hadn't found a place like that, especially open to speaking about concerns and social, political and economical grievances, to yeah. be honest. And and I wanted to I wanted to, to have that. And it started in my house, you know, just dinners, pizza parties at my house. We all happen to be working in creative fields and these conversations sprouted and were very important. And I realized that there was that there were so many other folks that I kept speaking to people over here and over there and over here and over there. And this became a moment and a place to bring it all together. El Salón, the name, of course, it has its uh, art historical reference to salons that have happened always. Um, but I, I, I also keep it in Spanish with a little accent mark uh, because I want it to be in Spanish. You know, and there are so many Spanish speaking countries and we yeah. can all miraculously still understand each other. And El Salón can translate from anything like living room, classroom to beauty parlor. And I have had significant conversations in all of these two places. Yeah. And so I just keep it as this El Salon project to maintain that kind of energy of conversation, of being open to learn anything new from anybody. Because we're all humans and we've all learned something along the way, along our lives that we can share if given an ear. What an amazing project. I love this project. So where do you where do you see this project going? Like, do you just want it to continue as is? Do you want it to grow and have like chapters? Like what is your dream for this for this project? You know, my, my dream for this project is for everybody to do this for themselves. <laughs> uh, for everyone to have the confidence of like getting together with people sharing ideas in the 21st century oh my goodness yeah (laughs) in the 21st centuries without fucking screens or zoom people can you imagine like now we're in a time where there are some of us that are justifiably afraid to be with people yeah yep and so how how are we gonna overcome that how are we going to return to touching, to hugging, to sharing meals. I've thought about that a lot too. That Because even now, like if I watch a movie or like a television show and people are not wearing masks and they're touching each other, I get a little bit anxious. Oh, I feel so anxious. My guiltiest of pleasures is watching Gilmore Girls. And <laughs> I feel I, you. <laughs> I was watching, I was watching a Thanksgiving episode and 
I like I had panic attacks. I was just freaking out. I was freaking out. Yeah. Because I, I realized like, oh my gosh, like they're, they don't even have cell phone. <laughs> 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 it's like, what time is this? This is like, this is some Disney made up movie. <laughs> <laughs> this is another world. I don't know this world. I do. I do get that feeling about cell phones when I, um, when I watch things from the eighties, especially, and, and I'm a little bit older than you, I think. Um, so I, I was born and like, I had my early childhood in the eighties. And so like, I was kind of on that cusp of like, I didn't have a cell phone as a teenager, but I, you know, I had one as a young adult. And so like, we had a landline and we used the landline. And so like, I remember like having news and like not being able to get a hold of your friend and you're so anxious about it and they're not calling you back. And it's, it's very like stressful. And so I watch movies in the eighties when people have like important news or there's a mystery or they're on an adventure. And I'm like, <laughs> they can't even call on the cell phone. What are like they if they do? only knew. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so silly, but yeah, so funny. So funny. Um, but I love this, that you're thinking about the future and like bringing people back together once we are mm-hmm. safely able to, to yeah. do so, because yeah, I feel like that is going to be a real, adjustment for a lot of people I think so I think so and um as for like El Salon as this project whatever its evolution looks like I'm not really sure a lot of folks have participated has really collected um a level of stories that I can't I haven't really archived all that well either I have a list of everyone who's participated but what happened at these places just happened Like you were either there or you weren't, period. I love that too. Like for, I like to document things because of course, like, you know, art, art historian, I'm like, yes, I want to know what this artist was doing. (laughs) But I also, part of me loves the mystery. Yeah. I mean, I have, I I kept the list and and every time I go back and add somebody, like, holy shit, Uh, this person's doing great stuff. This person turned around and did this and this person moved into this particular field or artwork, et cetera. Um, there is, there's so much growth that I see there and, and I'm proud of all, all the babies and, um, where it goes next. I'm not sure if it can, um, live in, in a kind of publication, uh, in a podcast. Um, I'm not sure if the conversations, what their next step will be, but I do know that it is part of my, my own practice as a curator that for each exhibit, you know, I want to have a conversation with, with the artist. Um, uh, a lot of the times when I write, uh, I, I end up doing an interview and the, the write-up is much more of an interview and interaction. And, the, and I haven't nailed down what the next iteration of it will be. And, you know, during this, during the pandemic, it's really, we've, I've hosted a couple of salons uh, on Zoom and they've been much more like panels. Right. And over the summer, 
I hosted two at Friends Gardens where they had installations in the garden space. Oh, I like and so that. So we were able to have art pieces and there was still an art component and an art talk. And then also, um, you know, limited and safe interaction. I'm very happy with, with these, these kind of ongoing iterations. Yeah, we'll see. I'll, I'll keep you posted because I, yeah. I do think that there is going to have to be a digital aspect to it too. Yeah, I was just thinking, I was like, this would be so fun to watch. Like, and, and this is not, and this is not like how it would actually be. But in my mind, I pictured, you know, how at the end of like reality shows, they there's like a host and they like gather all of the participants and they like yeah. go over everything on the couches. Um, yeah. Sometimes I watch those, even though I don't actually watch the reality shows, like to me, those reunion things are more interesting, but that was kind of what I pictured in my mind. Like you had all of the salon people like on, on couches or like on zoom and you guys just had your own conversation and we all got to listen to it. And I was like, Oh, this is fun. Yeah. The the recap, um, um, whatever, whatever's happening in the world. Um, and I think that that that's also where like so much uh, so much of the work is, uh, as when I visit a studio, uh, a lot of my questions are really about where the artist is, is at, what are they reading? What are they thinking about? Yeah. What's a new hobby outside of their art practice, um, that is influencing their art practice, uh, that is in the conversation, uh, that is in, in the making. And, and a lot of the times it's something very deeply personal, it's familial, it's political, it's social. I think almost, almost always. Well, let's turn, let's turn that around. Let's ask you those questions. (laughs) What are, what is, have you had any new hobbies or like new habits or anything that have come about during like quarantine and pandemic? that are now like informing your work and the ways that you think about art? Um, if anything, I've kind of gone back to my roots. I, I've picked up a lot of my, my own making. Uh, ah. Needlepoint. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a crafty, like crafty binger. I'll pick up anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Yeah, I went back to needlepoint. I went back to some knitting. Um, I have found that it was it was it was something that that I've done a lot, but didn't necessarily have time for it, right. or didn't find the time for it before. And all of a sudden, I just felt I had this time, but not just the time, but also like the the comfort for it yeah and so I went back to 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 those things primarily yeah I love that I wish that I could do either of those things I tried to do both of those things I tried to learn uh embroidery I made a really bad um like very bad terrible uh Cthulhu that I kind of love because it's so terrible um (laughs) Just like a little in a, in a little embroidery hoop, and I tried to learn to knit from 
from somebody who is an, an incredible knitter. Like they create these great works of art with knitting and I can cast on, but I cannot get it back. I can't do it. I don't know why it just does not work. My brain is like, oh, I don't understand. Um, so I am not a maker <laughs> in that way. <laughs> so I admire your your craftiness. Yeah, I've I've really returned to to my craft, and and really that's kind of the start of a lot of interest in in making thing a curiosity, and then curiosity from from being at home uh, from making my mom making our costumes for Halloween uh-huh. for me making like you know if, if I wanted it we could make it that was that was a solution yeah yeah my mom was really good at that stuff too and me I don't know it skipped me it, I just that sewing gene I don't know what happened to it <laughs> I did not I did not get it and it's unfortunate <laughs> So unfortunately, we have to wrap up. I can't believe it's been like an hour already, (laughs) but it has been an hour already. Is there anything else you want to tell us about? Like, how can people find you and your work and keep up with what you're doing? Um, So like a website or Instagram or like, where is the best place for people to find you? Yes. um, So the most active place is on Instagram. I have really used it as this kind of visual diary. Uh, I tend to post about works that I that I see. Um, sometimes I post some in a moment, or sometimes I I put in a lot of reflection into the captions because I see something and I want to reflect on it some more. So I share that on my Instagram. My handle is Eva Maya, E V A M A Y H A. That is also my website at dot com, where I have a bit more of an archive of El Salon. Uh, my ongoing project and narrative of past exhibitions. Um, and that uh, also has a link to sign up for a mailing list where I announce upcoming exhibits that I'm working on. And I also like to include a little list of recommended reading and listening to and Really, um, also, you're able to reach out to me for any questions, any ideas, and generally connecting uh, to other creative peoples. So, Awesome. Is there anything else that you would just like to relate to everyone before we sign off? I just want to encourage, encourage everyone to stay creative. And to know and, and recognize that it's, it's in their lives all the time, from how you're cooking, how you're dressing, and how you share it with, with your mentors, how you share it with the young people in your life, too. That's perfect. Thank you so much. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you would like to find us, as always, we can be found at criticalbounds.com or on Instagram at criticalboundspodcast. You can find Ava's work at E-V-A-M-A-Y-H-A on Instagram. Thanks again. Talk soon.